Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Welcome to week four in Advent. Today, we're focusing on just one word, anticipation. Now, there are all sorts of emotions that are connected, not just to the word anticipation, but the embodied experience of anticipation. You got hope and suspense and excitement and trust and relief, but also words like anxiety, fear and disappointment. Depending on what's already happened to you in life, you might be full of anticipation this season. Others are like, John, if you knew my life story and the dashed expectations that sort of have been part of my story, basically anticipation's been ripped right out of me. That's why every Christmas season is so mixed. Excitement, apathy, and sadness. And that's also why we as a culture try to work hard, to invoke, to enter into what people call the spirit of Christmas, the sense of the holidays. Basically, it's all to build one thing, anticipation. The older you get, the harder it becomes. Now, that's why we arrange and we organize and we plan and we set up lights and trees and inflatables on our lawns and majors and presents and wrapping paper and elf on the shelf and eggnog and food galore, all preparing for the grand reveal, the anticipated moment, Christmas Day. Now, If there's one way to access the feeling of anticipation for all of us, it's for all of us, whether you are 16 or you're 12 or you're 80, to go back to the place as a child when you really, 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 really wanted that gift, that toy, that item. Now, don't go to the place if you didn't get it. Go just before the time you didn't get it to the place that you were expectant, excited, full of anticipation. Now, if you grew up in the West, I know some of you did not, but for some of us who did, you always knew that there was in every generation or every year, there was the toy of the year, the the toy that every kid wants, the one that moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles fought to, to get. Now, a few years ago, I read something out of toy history. By the way, that's actually a thing. And what I tried to endeavor to do is to find each sort of generation's epic toy of the decade. And some of you were with us when we do this, so I want to give you an updated journey down memory lane to see if you remember these toys, you got these toys, or you wanted these toys. Now, I'm going to start in the 1920s. I'm sure probably no one listening to this remembers that as a child, but this is where it begins. In the 1920s, the toys that were like the toys were yo-yos, pop-up books, radio flyer wagons, tinker toys came on the scene, and Raggedy Ann dolls. Now, I want you to remember that, because where we're going to end up is pretty different. In the 1930s, it was Buck Rogers rocket gun, sock monkeys, I can't even believe that was a gift, Red Rider BB gun, some of you might know the reference to a movie, Army Men, which I think every generation has played with, Viewmasters and beach balls were the thing in the 1940s. Slinky arrived, and then, oh, In the 1940s, from what I understand, Lego shows up for the first time. It's the gift that keeps on giving, and we've stepped on it for 80 years as parents and sworn, and it's, anyway, it is what it is, Lego. Now, in the 1950s, some of you are now here, it was Silly Putty. Mr. Potato Head, who's still around today, came on the scene. Pez, Gumby, Tonka Trucks, Frisbees, Barbie makes her appearance. Paint by Numbers, Fake Vomit was huge that decade. Wiffle Ball and Play-Doh and Hula Hoops is what you wanted under the tree. The 1960s, Etch-A-Sketch, Ken shows up to say hi to Barbie. And then G.I. Joe, and listen, 
Some of you from that generation, I'm not. You know what I'm talking about. It's not the small GI Joes. It's the it's the big, tall GI Joes, like the size of Barbies. And some of you are like crying inside because you had them, and you know if you'd kept them, you would own three houses today by owning one of them. Light bright. Hot Wheels, Barbie's Dream House, Barrel of Monkeys, Easy Bake Ovens. I'm sure many, anyone got an Easy Bake route? Even if you're at a site, raise your head. Did you have one? And lastly, more importantly, Rock'em, Sock'em, Robots. In the 70s, all sorts of action figures start coming out. Paddington Bear, Weebles, Nerf Ball, Rubik's Cube, Simon the Memory Game. And lastly, right at the end, I believe, of the 70s, Atari. The first major gaming system comes out. I remember being at someone's house, because I was born in 75, and playing, I think it was called Pong. Well, the 1980s, this is my gem. This is where I live. Cabbage Patch Dolls. And some of you will remember the violence that happened over Cabbage Patch Dolls. You had Polly Pockets. You had Slap Bracelets. You had He-Man. You had She-Ra. You had My Little Pony. Transformers. Teddy Ruxpin. Star Wars figures start coming out. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Care Bears. Snoopy. Snow Cone Machine. Glow Room. And Nintendo. That's an epic generation. Just saying. 1990s, Beanie Babies. Buzz Lightyear, American Girl, Tickle Me Elmo. There were fights over that too. Furby, Super Soakers, Game Boy. And there was these things called, I think they're called Tamagotchi key change. You like raised a little like human, weird. Anyway, you'll know if you remember. Early 2000s, this is like Zuzu, the robotic hamsters, Bratz, Fashion Dolls, Razor Scooters, Xbox, PS2, PS3, Wii U, Shopkins, City Lego. All of that sort of comes to the, to the sort of forefront. And then since 2010, there's so many PS4, and now I think this season we're at PS5 and the Nintendo Switch and Frozen Dolls and all the Star Wars stuff like BB-8 Star Wars droids and Hatchimals and LOL Surprise and then Lego Avengers and Lego Mario and Lego Minecraft and Lego, 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 and then drones and Air Force Jordans. We've come a long way from Raggedy Ann dolls to Air Force Jordans and drones in 100 years. Just saying. And what was the feeling all of us had when we waited and waited and waited and waited? What was the emotion? What was the feeling? It was hopeful anticipation. I really, really, really hope I get that thing. Now, there is a deeply embedded hope, DNA thing, anticipation thing that is actually humanly shared. No matter, again, your ethnicity or skin color, uh, your age, your gender, your upbringing, the gift we all want, we really hope for truly is peace, health, hope, safety, good relationships, fresh starts, real forgiveness, purpose in life. We want this old English word, consolation. But it eludes us time and time again. We can't buy it. We can't build it. We can't fully give it to ourselves or others. It takes another. It takes an outsider to do this. And this, of course, is where the Holy Spirit of God comes in. He gives the gift that answers all the longings. He brings Jesus into the world. And, of course, he even brings Jesus into one's life if they're open. Now, a lot of you who have church memory know this. Some of you don't. There are four songs sung in the biblical Christmas stories. The original Christmas carols were sung, first of all, by Mary which we now call the Magnificat, which it's just an outburst of praise. And then John the Baptist's dad, Zachariah, he broke out in a song. And then the angels, when they announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, they either chanted or sang a song. But the last original Christmas carol, my favorite, is important for us today. And it's sung by a man named Simeon. Now, Simeon's song was later called I Can Now Die in Peace song. You're like, really? Yep. It was used in older church books, liturgical hymn books, as 
evening prayer or the closing prayer. In the early church, lots of people think that his song was used uh, uh, for Christian funerals. But it's full of light and it's full of anticipation even when talking about death. Now, our story begins on the fourth Advent Sunday like this. It's been eight days since Jesus has been born. Mary and Joseph, don't forget, are good Orthodox Jews and faithful Jews, and so they bring their son to the temple. They're obeying the religious laws regarding circumcision, purification, and there is a call to present your firstborn to God at the temple to dedicate them to God's service. So they're going to follow all the right ritual and worship, and in the middle of that, one priest stands out of the thousands of priests and workers at the temple. This is how it reads in Luke 2.25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, Simeon, apart from this story, we really know nothing about him. Great man, priest, most presume older in age. He says that he's waiting, he's looking, he's longing for this consolation of Israel. He is full of anticipation that there would be a personal intervention by God into time itself. God was coming to comfort, to help with grief, to provide solace to his people. And day after day, the sense we get here is he would pray, God, I'm waiting. God, is today the day? God, I need this gift. It says that he was righteous and devout. And these aren't just sort of formal titles like pastor or elder or PhD. No, no, no. This is his life. And then we see this phrase, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, here's what you've got to understand to see the power of the story. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was only upon people for certain tasks, certain times, and then left. Here, it's written in a continuous sense which is unbelievably rare. And so Simeon, this priest, walked with the Holy Spirit, talked with the Holy Spirit, was led by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And it says in verse 26, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that Simeon would not die before he had seen God's or the Lord's Messiah, Christ. So before you die, you are going to see, you're going to hold the long-awaited one, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in this one who's coming. Time passed, and his expectation did not wane. His hope was not moved. Day in, day out. He knew this was going to take place. True anticipation. Not I hope, not I wonder, not I wish. No, no, he says, I know I'm getting this gift. It's like he snuck into the closet and saw the gifts before they were under the tree. I'm getting this thing. And then it happened. It's another day, just another day. Thousands of people coming to work, thousands or ten thousands coming to worship, and then God whispers to this one priest, now. Verse 27, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, uh, in the, uh, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. So I want you to pause this. God the Father moves Simeon by Spirit to come into a certain part of the temple just at the right time, just at the right place. And this is incredibly important why you're like, well, why, John? Because the temple is massive. This is humongous. So the odds, right place, right time, not likely, but there's more. The temple is the center of God's presence. It's the meeting place between God and human beings. This is the place where God's very presence was above the Holy of Holies. But also, this temple had a mixed history. See, this temple is not Solomon's temple. 
The rebuilding of this temple starts all the way back with Ezra and Nehemiah, four or five hundred years earlier, and then it's used. But then comes along a guy named Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great governed Jerusalem on behalf of Caesar, by the way, and the Roman Empire from about like 37 BC to 4 BC, give or take. And he's extremely arrogant and cunning and paranoid. By the way, he regularly oppressed the people. He wasn't truly a follower of the Jews in the religious sense. He killed all sorts of relatives and friends. And he's the one, because he's a brilliant architect, that rebuilds the temple to this grand state that it's now in. So interestingly, God, lean in, chooses to show up in a mixed place. Not a perfect place, not a perfect people, but he still brings his presence anyway. So Simeon walks right up to these parents in that moment, in that place, and an ordinary baby on all accounts, like all the other babies, and suddenly the Holy Spirit whispers to Simeon, this is the one. Well, Simeon took Jesus in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. He holds this newborn, this eight-day-old, and breaks out in a song. I've seen the child, God, as you promised. Now I can die. Can you imagine Mary Joseph's reaction? Sovereign God, as Simeon says. God, you're king. You're truly in charge. Time and history, the Lord of all, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You, Lord, are, are good, and I'm your servant. Now, if you know the other songs, Simeon takes the same title used by Mary in her song. I'm yours. And the word servant is actually, I am your willing slave. You are king, and you are Lord, and you're free now, God, Simeon says. You can take me. I'm ready to die. My long task is over. I have seen what you have promised. At the end of his life, Simeon holds in his arms a child that is just beginning his life. But this child will bring actual eternal life to millions, billions, ends and beginnings. Yet the beginning in his arms will overcome death in the end. Well, he sings it for all who want to hear. For my eyes have seen your salvation, for which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light and revelation for non-Jews and for the glory of your people, Israel. My eyes have seen the instrument of your salvation. This child will save people. It's not a mistake that Jesus' name means God is my salvation. The baby through whom the Father would in time bring salvation, the baby Simeon is holding is salvation. And what would he save us from? Satan. Death in all three forms, relational death between us and God, eternal death called hell, and also, of course, literal physical death, because he overcomes it through resurrection. He also overcomes sin and all the ugly ripples that have ripped through the soul of the human family. He's for all people. He's a light for all of us to see our way home, to see our terrible condition, and to make us whole. And notice, like we say this again, Jesus has come for everyone. Jesus will be a light for non-Jews to meet the only true living God. And Jesus is the glory. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the whole Jewish faith. And how will the world see and know and embrace and understand and be saved by Jesus? Oh, always by the Holy Spirit. Then he says, it says that the child's father and mother marveled at what Simeon was saying about Jesus. And then the old priest, full of delight and rest and and hope, knowing he would never pray again, God is today the day, he turns to Jesus' mom and stepdad, still holding Jesus. He speaks to them. It's like he raised his hands, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, 
his mother. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And he be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Many will accept Jesus, Mary. Many, many more will reject him. Many actually will speak against him, for God's moves are expected by some, missed by more, and rejected by many, many more. Years later, Jesus would grow up, and as he's proclaiming who he is and why he's here, he would literally fulfill what Simeon said. I mean, here are the wild words that Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father, his mother, more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not saying you can't love your mom, your dad, or your kids. He's saying, I though am Lord, I have to have the most important place in your life. Under the same, the same power, that's the spirit that Simeon had walked with for so long. His, his old kind eyes looking at this young teenager teen's mother's face. Simeon's parting words inspired by the Spirit are haunting. A sword will pierce your soul too, Mary. Ah, uh, yeah, Jesus will save you, Mary, and save me and save many of us, but his coming sufferings will be deeply dark and painful for you. Dear Mary, Mother Mary, for a time before the resurrection, your other children, even like James and Jude, oh, they're not going to believe what I'm saying to you. And, and many of my fellow priests and many, many pastors of the day, they will never believe that he's the one we've all been anticipating for generations. And your soul, Mary, it will be so wounded. I don't know if you've read this, but in different accounts, like in Mark, in Mark 3, we can see the unbelief of his own family. When his family heard about this, Mark 3.21, they went to take charge of Jesus, for they said, this is his own family. Jesus is out of his mind. He's crazy. He's lost it. Like, he's insane. And then, oh, in verse 22, the teachers of the law, the priests and the pastors who came down from Jerusalem, they said Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, Satan, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. His family didn't believe. Most of the religious leaders didn't believe. So many people didn't believe. And there's more. His mother would actually watch Jesus die. I mean, it's just not right. It's not the way it should be for parents to watch children die. All death is awful, but it's worse in this order. And yet this would take place. Mary would watch her son be tortured and crucified. But also, Mary would be there when Jesus physically, three days later, comes back from the dead. Now, all that's for later. But again, this whole story shows us the tension found in anticipation, pleasure, anxiety, fear, hope, trust, disappointment, relief, excitement, all rolled into one. So it's like we're sitting in this story and Mary's got these words and Simeon's praising God and breaking out in a song and we're feeling the dissonance of the moment. And suddenly there's an interruption. We're moved to another person who's lived for decades in the now and not yet. Another route of anticipation has been building in the temple and also unseen, and we don't know about this one either. The angels had declared anticipation. Simeon had now declared he had been anticipating something. And now a few minutes later, there's another dramatic encounter. Verse 36. There was also a prophetess named Anna. And she was from the tribe of Asher, 
Oh, she was very old and she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then she was a widow until she was 84. Now, there is a connection I have never seen. I've preached this passage many times. I have never caught this. I, I, I'm sure most, if not all of us, have never caught this. Most girls in this culture would be married around the age of 14. Then it says that this woman was married for seven years. And in Greek, when you read this, this can, this can read either she was a widow until she was 84 or it can read she had been widowed for 84 years. That would mean that she's 105 years old. And you're like, okay, that's pretty epic, 105, that's pretty cool, but why does that matter? Well, <laughs> if you're a Jew hearing this, you would have suddenly gone, oh, hold on a second, what? See, in Jewish history, there was a very famous woman named Judith. She was 105 years old. Judith was considered a heroess of Israel. She was a widow, and after her husband died, she was known for fasting and praying, being near God and serving God. So Jews hearing this would go, hold on, hold on, something profound is happening here because Anna sure sounds like this other hero we've all heard about. And then the description. Anna never left the temple, but she worshiped day and night fasting and praying. Catch this. Anna loved God's presence. Anna loved God's power. Anna loved God's ways. There's more here. We talked about this in our Holy Habit series. Remember, God doesn't get closer to us when we do spiritual disciplines. He, he doesn't go, oh my goodness, someone's fasting. My ear needs to get so much closer to the ground. I'm so attracted, like a bug, right, into one of those lights. No, 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 no. Spiritual disciplines clear the space for us to hear God better. They don't save us. They don't get God's attention more. They help us to get close to Him in the sense of us being aware. She was waiting for years to hear more, listen more, to see what God was saying. She was involved in your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, as we learned in our Holy Habit series, fasting sets the environment for us to walk with God. It sets the stage to engage in other practices like solitude and silence so we can be uncluttered and listen. Scott McKnight, who brilliantly talks a lot about fasting, reminds us that in the Bible, fasting, he writes, is a response to a grievous sacred moment and the contact with the sacred ought to transform us. Fasting can be proactive. I'm going to fast, ask God for something. But in the Bible, it's almost exclusively in reaction to something. Now, not getting something, but responding. Now, Anna knew so much was wrong with the world. And, and don't misread this. This is not a woman, broken woman, 84 years, nursing a wound of great loss. I've never got over the loss of my husband. No, no. Her loss led her to sit with her ultimate husband, God. And he had let her see the darkness in the world. And she had prayed and waited and waited. But she also walked with the Spirit. And she knew. She had also been told the anticipation she had was also real. And just like Simeon, at the right time, in the right place, in that massive structure, the Holy Spirit then says to his daughter, it's time. Verse 38, coming to them that very moment, she gave thanks to God, spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the of the redemption of Jerusalem. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph were like, what's going on? Now, like all Christmases, there's joy and there's pain. There's wonder, there's wandering, there's endings, there's beginnings, there's beginnings, there are endings, there's growth and there's grief. And in the middle of all of it, the Holy Spirit, every Advent season is there, 
pointing us to Jesus himself. See, the Holy Spirit that filled Elizabeth and Zechariah, that spoke to Simeon and Anna, that moved both of them to meet Mary and Joseph, that brought Jesus into Mary's room, is even here now. He's right here in Ajax at this moment. He's in Pickering right now. He's in Port Perry right now. He's in Bowmanville right now. He's online wherever you are right now. He's actually, some of you, he's actually been preparing you. He's been bringing you the good news. He's been talking to you. He's been orchestrating things in your life. And he's not just revealing Jesus to you. He's literally placing Jesus into your arms. What are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus is the savior of the world. Like I said last week, I love the quote by uh, this amazing Anglican pastor when she said, Advent begins when human achievement ends. (laughs) Jesus is savior. He saves us from sin, death, and the demonic. We can't do those things. He can. He's the light that leads us. He is redemption. What will you do with Jesus? Will you say, yes, say, Lord Jesus, have mercy in me, a sinner. Save me, make me new. Now, I know probably the vast majority of us us watching this or, or listening to this, you're a Christian. And as I sat and prayed and listened on behalf of our church, it's actually Anna that stood up most to me for our church in this season. Let's talk about it in two ways. Let's first of all talk about the long spiritual work many of us who are Christians have been doing for a long time. I want to remind you, between Malachi and the birth of Jesus, God hardly spoke. 400 years of basic silence. Simeon had waited almost his whole life. Anna was 105 years old, 84 years as a widow, praying, fasting, wondering, and wrestling. And yet, when you truly do things that are godly and for God with right motive, it is worth it. One pastor, Eugene Peterson, speaking to pastors but about ministry, but really it applies to everything. Basically, he said, Christian life is long obedience in the same direction. I feel constrained, compelled, I think prompted by the Spirit to say this, this Advent, for, for a small group of you across Sanctus Church, or you might be actually a pastor or a group of pastors listening in other churches to this sermon or somewhere else. This Advent, the Holy Spirit is just whispering to you, honestly whispering, keep going. It's not in vain. The anticipation is not a false setup. Simeon and Anna demonstrate faithfulness in the long run will be honored the most. Don't give up doing the things of God. Ah, but if I can step back from a prompting for a few to an application for all. Love and adoration and real anticipation are seen in the life of Anna. I want to remind you, Anna wanted to be near to God. It's what the psalmist said, right? Like, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth, to use the King James, after thee. What we see in Anna is actually what Christians are invited into between the first advent, Christmas, and the second advent, the return of Jesus. What we call the now and not yet. Paul had a similar sort of thread in his life. 
I want you to listen to some of Paul's last words in 2 Timothy 2.7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. He's actually preparing to be executed at this moment. I have kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, here's the phrase, but also to all who have longed for Jesus' appearing. To us that are Christians, Anna's own life and journey shows us a deep longing. And Paul would ask us this Advent season, if you're a Christian, ready everyone? How homesick are you? Are you actually included all who long for Jesus' second appearing? Longing is a strong word. Longing is like heartache. It's thirst. It's desire. A desire for Jesus. A desire for a second advent. A desire for Jesus' return. This really brings us home, sort of this reality of anticipation. Paul uh, radically, years earlier, said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, I'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Can you say that? Can I say that? I didn't even include it in my notes, but he also says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. See, at the end of the day, everything's about Jesus and being with him and wanting him more than we want other good things. I love what Job said. Job probably is the earliest book written, by the way. And I love when Job says in Job 121, naked I came from my mom's womb and naked I'm going to go. I'm going to depart. Like I've said so many times, there's no U-Hauls at funerals. You don't take anything. Trust me, if you want proof, go to any museum on earth. We're still digging up the U-Hauls called, oh right, the Egyptian mummy stuff. Like, it just doesn't go. Family's not going, music's not going, position, memory, spouse, intellect, kids, health, education, homes, position, personalities. It all fades. Now we as Christians, members of the kingdom of God, understand life can be good and beautiful and enjoyed. But we also know that this is not it. In the full sense. I've shared this before. I'm going to do it again because it's so good. I love this old vivid picture. One person writes, There was a tale of an eminent man, a man full of love, of letters, and of art. He drew near the end of his life. And one day in a stunning old home, an old family servant found him moving slowly through his splendid library. He touched many treasured volumes, with his sensitive, loving fingers. He laid his gentle hands upon all the statues he had collected. He walked through the room and he looked at all the amazing, beautiful paintings he acquired. And the servant leaned in and listened. And the man quietly said, I must leave you, and I need to leave you, and I will leave you too. I mean... We will leave our family. Now, of course, if they become Christians, we'll have eternity with them. But we will leave family. You will leave your house. You will leave your job. You will leave your money. You will leave your friendships, the, the world, beauty, art, social media, accomplishments. I will leave you, you, you. Again, let me say this. Our world, our own hearts, Satan always tells us to squeeze everything we can out of this life. Do everything you can. Have every experience you can. Even if it's wrong or sinful or it hurts you or others, just do it because, listen, this is the only shot you've got. And if you don't try it now, you'll lose. 
That's why beauty products and the whole industry to keep us young is so massive. It's why the entertainment industry is so, has so much power. But we know as Christians, listen, let's lean in. We know our longing as Christians is for Jesus himself, seeing Jesus face to face. Anna and Simeon did this their whole lives. They waited and then they saw. Now, let me ask you the question if you're a Christian. Have you actually imagined this? Yes, I know there's a song. Please don't break out. But honestly, if you're a Christian, have you sat down and actually imagined meeting Jesus? Seeing Jesus? Sitting with Jesus? Talking with Jesus? Remember this Sunday, this Advent Sunday, remember Jesus' words in John 14. I will come back and I'll take you to be with me to the place where I am. At some level, I sense that seeing Jesus and sitting with Jesus is going to combine eternally the epic moment of experiencing something new and amazing for the first time and also at the exact same time being a place where everything feels old and trusted. I mean, we all have memories of first things, right? The first kiss, watching that movie for the first time and like, oh, that was so incredible. Hearing that song for the first time, trying that meal for the first time becomes a lifelong favorite. Now you can go watch the movie again, hear the song again, you can eat the meal again, but you can never re-experience or reenact the first time moment. Now in English, which is my, of course, mother tongue, we have 750,000 words, but many of our words don't do well encapsulating encounter and experience. In Norwegian, there's a word that cannot be fully understood in English. It means the euphoria experienced as you begin to fall in love. It's the, the first love thing. In the Filipino language, there's another word that you can't translate in English. It's the feeling of butterflies in your stomach when something romantic begins to take place. All of this is going to be found in Jesus forever in the sense of ongoing, never-ending firstness. And yet, we all know as humans there are other places and spaces that are known to us. They're old, they're saddened, they're loved. When you arrive, you're just like, home. It could be a house, it could be a chair, it could be a person, it could be a place. For me, it's a smell. It's different for all of us. It's like a bride. I don't know if you come from a tradition like this, but in, in my culture, brides wear something old and something new. That's what our forever with Jesus, I sense, is going to be like. Not only just in the new heavens and the new earth, but sitting with Jesus, when I'm with Jesus, it's going to fill my life with the ever firstness new thing that never stops and the old thing at the same time. And when those things that contradict each other are found in him all the time, I'm going to have rest, joy, endless exploration and security all at once. That's what I think part of sitting with Jesus is going to be like. I love how Peter talks about this. And he sat with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He hugged Jesus. He had Jesus in a way we have not yet had. And when he was speaking to the generation behind him, and then of course to us, he writes this in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Jesus, oh, you love Jesus. And even though you do not see Jesus now, you believe in Jesus and you're filled with inexpressible and glorious 
joy. As we celebrate Advent this fourth week, we are encouraged, we are reminded that the second Advent is coming. And when Jesus says, I will take you to the place where I am, he meant it. Yes, a new heavens, new earth is going to be epic. But the real home, the real desire is to be with Jesus personally. The question for you as a Christian is, how homesick are you? Are you like Simeon and Anna, rooted in a loving waiting for him, knowing, knowing it's going to happen? You've seen the gift in the closet, and you're just waiting. Or have you become distracted, discouraged, or doubtful? Here's what we pray. One, Lord, thank you that the Holy Spirit led Simeon and Anna to Jesus. Holy Spirit, lead anyone within the sound of my voice who does not personally know Jesus to Jesus. Open their eyes and bring them eternal life. Holy Spirit, it was very clear this week as I sat with you that you wanted to encourage some people to keep going in just basic faithfulness. Let them know it's you speaking. Empower them to keep going. Lastly, I'm going to ask Father and Son that you'd send the Spirit and that you would build a homesickness in our church that has never been experienced before. Not a hatred of this life, not a throwing away of this life, but a deep, deep relational desire, an anticipation to be with Jesus. Would you restore all of us who are distracted and, and doubtful, just disturbed even? Build this anticipation in us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.